This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Ewa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over. And Celeste Ng, yes, you know her name already, but wow, this new book, Our Missing Hearts, is... I've read it twice now. I've read it twice, and I was so mad when it ended both times because I was not ready to leave this world, and I was not ready to leave Margaret and Bird and Ethan and Domi, and you will meet all of these characters, Sadie. Wait until you meet Sadie. Celeste, thank you so much for joining us on the show. I'm so excited to see you this morning. Mila, it is such a joy to get to talk to you. I keep stumbling over something that you put very early in the book. And it just makes the hair stand up on the back of my neck. And it, it starts, but pact is more than a law. It's a promise we make to each other. And it stops me. To, and there's a little bit more. And, and we're going to get to the detail on that. But that right there just stops me dead in my tracks. Would you explain where we are in the world of Our Missing Hearts in relation to Pact? Yeah. So Our Missing Hearts takes place in a world that I've heard people describe as dystopian. I will talk later probably about how dystopian it really is. I like to think of it as our world, but just with the volume kind of turned up, uh, you know, turned up to 11, so to speak where a lot of the issues that we're dealing with are just a little bit more uh, overtly stated. So PACT is a law that has been passed in the wake of a big uh, you know, economic and social crisis to try and kind of restore order. And it stands for Preserving American Culture and Traditions. And it's a law that's intended to ask people to watch out for uh, viewpoints that might be subversive, to report any behavior that they hear of or see that might be subversive, and it also allows for children to be removed from environments that are considered to be un-American or dangerous to them in any way. And that's where you maybe start to hear the danger coming in, um, because this is a law that ends up being applied, let's say mostly, to uh, East Asian Americans or Asia uh, Americans of East Asian descent, and in particular Chinese Americans, because in this world, China is sort of the, the big enemy of the moment. And so uh, Bird, who's this 12-year-old, is growing up in this world, and he's never known a different one. And he mm -hmm. is a mixed-race kid. His uh, mother is Chinese-American, and his father is white. So it becomes very personal for him. And his mother's a poet, and she's become something of a shadowy dissident because one of her poems, a line from one of her poems, goes viral. And that was never her intention. She was literally writing poetry because it was what she did. I'm struck a lot of times by the ways that phrases that people say or work that people do um, gets interpreted in ways that were not necessarily what they originally meant. And doesn't necessarily mean that it's wrong, but it means that that work is taking on a whole life of itself. And particularly for an artist, you then get called upon to speak for a particular thing, which may or may not have been your intent. And that's what happens to Margaret in the book. I don't think it's a spoiler to say that she leaves before Bird can be taken. And Ethan, poor Ethan, this guy, I feel for him because he's trying to protect his kid. He's trying to protect his wife. He's really sort of between a rock and a hard place. And his own parents don't even understand what's happening. And frankly, he just stops talking to them because it's easier and it's safer. Yeah. And his mother's friends are all doing that. Is this your son? Isn't this your daughter-in-law? Is this your son? Isn't this your daughter? And just the sheer volume of email and everything that's happening with Ethan's mother. And you cover it very quickly and very sort of delicately, but at the same time, 
it's another one of those moments where the hair is standing up on the back of my neck. And I'm thinking, if you know enough about American history, this is profoundly uncomfortable. It's very unsettling. And I, I think it's that's that's how it happens often, right? I mean, sometimes it's a very obvious, very blatant sort of thing, but sometimes it happens in a much more subtle way. It happens in a way that that's almost imperceptibly uh, subtle, you know, and yet you feel it very intently if you've been the subject of that kind of scrutiny of, you know, people just kind of checking up, oh, just checking in. Oh, isn't this, is this what this is? You know, the feeling of being scrutinized, I think, is is a very real one. And it's one that, you know, many people in the book feel. And that's a place where I think Ethan feels it maybe for one of the first times in his life. He's a white American man between the ages of 18 and 45 or whatever that demographic is, <laughs> you know, he's not had to be in a position where he's being eyed askance. And this is a place where he is. And he finds that he can't even explain that to his, his own parents. They don't get it either because they've never had to be in that position either. Ethan has never been othered. Yeah. And this is a first time where I think he really kind of recognizes what it's like to be othered and to be surveilled. Right. It's a very, I think it's a very startling and terrifying awakening for him about what that might be like. I have lots of notes in my galley where I'm just like, surveillance state, surveillance state, surveillance state. And, you know, I say this as someone who paid for TSA pre-check so I can stand in a shorter line and not take my shoes off. So, I as mean, did I, I have to admit, I, I have complicated right? feelings about that. Right? Yeah. Right? I mean, I turn off the, the locator buttons on my phone and yet... I like to get weather, weather notifications. So is that on in the background? Yes. Yes, it is. I mean, we live in this world where already we're handing over so much of our privacy as yeah. it is. I, I feel that too. And I, I do the same thing where I've turned off, you know, all the locations mm -hmm. on my phone, uh, partly because I'm like, well, that's creepy, but also partly because there are weird forces out there. And if I post a photo, mm -hmm. they're going to be able to figure out where I live. And I don't want that. Mm -mm. But then at the same time, I recognize too that that is one drop in the bucket. Um, you know, there was a, a there was a little fender bender on my street earlier and my neighbor was going around asking people, you know, do you have a camera up so mm -hmm. I can see who hit my car and took off? Right. Right. And that's commonplace now. Right. right. There are many cameras around um, recording for benign and then less benign purposes. And it seems to be a part of our daily life. You're just you're always being watched, even if you don't know it. And, you know, certainly when we were all better about masking to um there was a certain freedom that comes with that and and knowing that you know you made it a little harder for a robot somewhere to figure out <laughs> i used to think that especially in the winter you know where we were masking and then you've also uh here in boston uh, it's cold so i had like a mm -hmm. big hat on and oh yeah also but it's also sunny so then i had my sunglasses on and i was oh, like, yes the only thing people can see is my mouth or no no they can't even see my mouth no because everything and it was great it was just kind of like you were completely sort of hidden away. And and I bring this up because it's a really complicated moment to be Asian American. Yeah. And, you know, we've seen an extraordinary increase in violence, especially towards our elders, which I'm like, why are you punching an 80-year-old in the head? Like, what is wrong with you? I, I feel similarly where I'm just like, of all the ways that you would want to take out that feeling and setting aside right? the reasons you have that feeling, what is wrong in your mind that punching an elderly person is an acceptable thing to do right it's there there's this 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 gap in my understanding and i keep coming back to it and kind of looking into it and then like trying to figure out is there a way to get over the gap and i haven't figured it out yet but yeah. i keep wanting there to be a way across this gap where i can 
understand what kind of warp logic led that to happen, and I, I can't. I mean, it's part of the whole world of our missing hearts, is this is just what we see and what we choose not to see and what we choose to understand and what we choose not to understand. And it feels, like you said, it's reality dialed up. And I think part of that packed line, and it's literally on the first page of the book, I'm Japanese American and I know my history and Mm -hmm. I've been to Manzanar and that stamps, it's, that's not Plymouth Plantation. And I spent every school year, because I grew up in Massachusetts, being taken to Plymouth Plantation to see the animatronic, but to stand in a space that, you know, Ansel Adams had taken photos of and next to the obelisk at the mm-hmm. backside of Manzanar, and to know that this has happened. This has happened, and recently, right? You know, like, there's no barbed wire fences at no. Plymouth Plantation. No. Nope. Also, being in Massachusetts, have been to Plymouth Plantation. Yeah, it's, right. it's, been renamed, it's been renamed now, which I appreciate. I can't remember what the new name of it is. Oh, I had no they, idea. They don't want to use the term plantation anymore, which I, I respect, okay. and I'm glad that they did that, but I... I I don't remember what the new name is because for so long it has right. been in my mind, right? Where's this word that we've been trained to go like, okay, we're just going to let that go. Um, but you're right. It's the sense in which this is, this is not hypothetical and this is not ancient history. This is something that has happened and has happened to people who are still alive now. Right. And yet what, what strikes me often is that a lot of the history is not taught. I don't think I was taught at all about Japanese internment. Um, in history, because if we did, it was one of those like very small little boxes, like in the corner of the book. And I knew about it because my mother, as a Chinese American in a place where there were very few other Asians of any kind mm-hmm. in the eighties was like, I'm going to get any book about or by Asians that I could get. And so she was getting me books as a child and my sister books like Farewell to Manzanar. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know, I, it was like, you know, in retrospect, I was like, mom, that was a like kind of strange reading for me as a child. But at the same time, I think she was like, this happened. You should know about it. This is the thing that happened. And there were children there too. Yeah. And you should know about that. And now I kind of appreciate that because Mm -hmm. I feel like there's a push now to remove those stories because of the discomfort that they cause. And while I understand that discomfort, it feels very dangerous to me to go like, well, let's just not learn about that anymore. Yeah, I don't think pretending gets us anywhere. But you have this lovely line about Margaret before she leaves. It's Margaret and Bird that she's always telling him stories because she wants to teach him that the world is full of possibility. And this is as the crisis has happened. This is not like people have lost their jobs and things are terrible and and really it is not a good situation. And yet here she is in this very, very hopeful act trying to teach her child that there is more to the world in front of him. And I think that's so important that we keep doing that. It's like, so Anthony Mara, who you're as fond of as I am, Um, he has this great moment in Mercury Pictures Presents where he's talking about the fact that people still make jokes when the world is on fire. Yes. Terrible things happen, but you're still with your friends and your family. And I love the aunties in that book. Oh, there's so so much about the book I love. But the idea, though, that when the world is a terrible place, you don't suddenly stop being human. Yeah. 
And I, that feels really important. I realized mm-hmm. that, you know, I, I go into the book and I don't know what I'm writing about. And by the time I come out at the end, I have right. some idea of what I was at least asking, right? <laughs> um, for me, that's always that's always the 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 route into the book is I don't know what okay. what I'm thinking about and I'm trying to articulate it for myself. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I realized I was thinking about was, as you said, about holding on to that humanity because there is a there it's so easy to lose track of your humanity and the humanity of other people when things are hard i think it's it's natural and yet it feels really important it's you know the 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 poem that's now become a cliche but you know right. like will there be singing in the dark times right like yes yep. there'll be singing right. that idea that you need to hold on to that because in a way it gives you a reminder that mm-hmm. the world doesn't have to be like this right. it wasn't always like this Mm-hmm. It can be different again, mm-hmm. right? It reminds you of the things that you're you're struggling for rather than just the things that you're struggling against. And it feels so important. Yeah, you know, during the pandemic, I was finding myself turning to poetry. I was turning to, you know, old poems that I had loved and was rereading. I was turning to music. I was turning mm-hmm. to, you know, films that I loved. And it feels in a way like you're not looking at, you're like, no, you should be thinking all the time about the terrible mm-hmm. things that are happening. But I think you do need to remember also, what are you trying to get through to? Yeah. Right. You're not just getting through and then there's a vacuum. You have to, you have to hold on to those things. Especially when it's a very short step between othering to dehumanization mm-hmm. and dehumanization is a tenant of fascism. So, mm-hmm. I mean, if you do not see another human being as human mm-hmm. and you can turn them into essentially the boogeyman. I mean, nothing says terrorist like a two-year-old, but okay. Bilingual two-year-old. I mean, that's exactly it. It's the sense that when you lose your humanity or when you lose sight of other people's humanity, mm-hmm. all kinds of terrible things become very possible and tend mm-hmm. to happen, right? When you, for example, refer to people as vermin, Mm-hmm. Right? which is a thing that has happened many times in many different contexts throughout history. What you are saying is they are not people like me, right? And that's part of why I feel like it is so important to kind of remember like, no, these are people. They are people and they are people who have individual stories, right? And we see that happening, I think, in a lot of contexts too. We, we look at it too in terms of now it's usually gun violence when there are many victims rather than just saying there are all these victims, to try and remember that they were individual people feels very important, right? Because otherwise you're just saying, oh, they were just a body that a bullet was shot into, Mm -hmm. right? There's no humans involved in this equation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But if we look at it as these are humans and this was a human who did this, in some ways it feels like it is not then something that we can write off as academic. That's absolutely true. And I feel too like you've written a very Asian American novel, much more so even than the even than everything I never told you, because Margaret doesn't speak Chinese. Yeah. She is the child of an immigrant, but they had to acclimate is the word that's coming to mind. But assimilate, that's not, maybe. Assimilate, is, thank you, is the I word. Like no, I the, literally am blanking on the word assimilation. It's thankfully a word that I think is less in use now. Yeah, right? Because when you think about this, and this is where the word nerd in me comes out, this mm-hmm. is you know, where, this is where Ethan in the book came from, is my word nerdery, that assimilation suggests that you are becoming more similar to other people. And in a way, that means that you're getting rid of all the things that make you distinctive. You're blending in by removing your own distinctiveness. 
And at least in the era that I was growing up in, I think that was very much sort of the mindset of many, at least of the East Asian immigrants that I knew of, right? There weren't very many in my area, but a lot of the sense of the whole era and my friends, you know, my parents' friends was just try and act as American as possible. Yeah. Whatever that means, right? Which is, and I think, you know, it's, it's, it was a different time and it was certainly a different era. And, you know, my mother remembers very viscerally learning about Vincent Chin, for example. Yes. Yeah, right? exactly. And I, I really appreciate now how I think kind of firm in their beliefs they were, where they were like, no, you are Chinese American. Like this is, you, you are American, but you are also Chinese and don't forget that. And that in a way they kind of refused to let go of that part. And they wanted me to have access to that too. But we still see this attitude now. I mean, we still, you know, there are still people who say things like, well, if you just act as American as you can and wear red, white, and blue, then that'll show that we're American. And I think it comes from a a good place. Absolutely. But we've Absolutely. seen that that's not, that's not the magic key to the kingdom, right? You're not magically going to belong. No, it's not. It really isn't. And, you know, the idea to, I'm also Taiwanese American. So that complicates, like, that's oh, yeah, a whole, this, not, this like a the whole bunch of layers. There. <laughs> uh, my parents are from Hong Kong. Right. So, so you get it too. <laughs> mm-hmm, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there. Right. And I've had Chinese professors say to me, no, you're Chinese. And I'm like, no, really, dude, I, I promise you I'm Taiwanese. And, <laughs> and, and do not want to hear that. <laughs> well, and that's a political thing, right? I mean, Absolutely. Like, look at, Absolutely. I was at a map company or something that China got very mad. I'm sure it's happened more than once. They, yeah. they get mad about a number of things, sometimes with good reason and sometimes with less good reason, well, yeah. to be scrupulously fair. Yeah. Um, but where, you know, some someone had dared to put on the map Taiwan on like a list of countries they're like, no, 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 that's part of, that's right. part of China. It's a province. And as someone whose family comes from Hong Kong, I'm like, mm, I, I, you know, and, and there's complication there too, because Hong Kong used to be a British colony and there's a lot of layers of complication, right? There's just the levels at which people decide to draw lines around your identity for you, I think are sometimes very telling. We're taping this just after the funeral for Elizabeth II of England. And I have to tell you, I spent a lot of time in the last couple of weeks thinking about Hong Kong and the people who are allowed to emigrate to the UK and the people who are not and how many people ended up in Canada because, you know, colonies are colonies and thus will remain so apparently. But um, there are so many layers and levels to all of these conversations about identity. And yet here's Margaret. Mm-hmm. really being targeted. I mean, essentially being targeted by a surveillance yeah. state with the participation of her neighbors, yeah. possibly some friends, possibly some family members. This is a very intense read because you balance character and plot. Nothing You never slow down. Even when Margaret's talking to her child, you're always moving forward, which I really appreciate mm-hmm. because it's, this is not a polemic. I'm really glad to hear you say that because for me, it's uh, plot is something that honestly does not come naturally to me, and people don't believe really? me when I say that. Yeah, okay. I in grad school, one of my advisors who I love and and it was so helpful to hear her say this would say, "This is you know, here's a draft of a story. Okay, this is great. You've got interesting characters. You've got a great situation. Your writing is great. You just need a plot, and then you will have a story." And I, I say that with fondness because she was right that at the time I I didn't really understand what a a, a, a plot was. 
right? Which in my mind now, I think of as being a, a cause and effect relationship. One thing leads to another thing, right? And I, it doesn't come naturally to me, apparently. And so I work at it really hard and I try to think very hard, like, what is this going, if this person does this, what is this going to cause to happen next? But for me, that plot always has to come from the character. And so I'm really glad if, if it feels, you know, to the reader that I've hit a balance, because for me, it's always about this mother and this son. All the world stuff is kind of incidental, but I want it to be relevant to that family story. Right. Like mm -hmm. it always has to be in some ways they have to be the thing that is making you keep going, not the world, not all the other stuff, not the big ideas that hopefully come afterwards. It has to be the character for me. Right. So you start in 2016 after that election. But here you are channeling all of this, all of this fear and rage and attempt to understand what has happened into essentially a mother and son adventure story. I kept thinking of it as this is his quest in a way. Mm -hmm. And that's how he mm -hmm. thinks about it. He thinks of himself mm -hmm. as a, a character in a, a fairy tale in a way who's going on a quest. And there's so many stories like that about, you know, a, a character who's going in search of a lost loved one, right? Whether it's a daughter, a mother, a son, um, there's this sense of I'm going off to find you. And that's really powerful. And in a way, I think that clicked here because Bird is really... It's also a coming of age story. He's going off into the world. He's leaving home and he's going out and he's going to discover what the world is like. It does fit into that kind of narrative, but of course it gets complicated by the fact that he's not in a fairy tale. He's also, he's a very smart kid, but Bird feels like a little boy. This relationship that he has with each of his parents, because his relationship with his dad is very different from his relationship with his mother. Yeah. Not just because Margaret's gone now. Yeah, but because they're different people. Right. I mean, they're different people. And I do think the relationships between parents of different genders often ends up being different. Just the dynamic is different. But his parents are very, I mean, they have much in common, but they have different ways of approaching the world. And part of that, I think, comes from sort of their background and part of it comes from personality. And so with his dad, his dad is, I think, very much like, look, let's just keep it together. Just lay low. Don't just, you know, and in a way, as we talked about at the, the beginning, his father has not had a lifetime of experiences of being othered, right? And so in a sense, he's like, let's just not do that again. We're just, that can be avoided, right? Whereas Margaret, I think, is like, that cannot be avoided. That's, that's in my face, right? It is, it is always going to be with me. And so in a way, she leans into it. But she also, as, as a creative person, and Ethan, as I would say, as a scholar, have very different approaches to the world, right? In a way, his he's trying to take it apart and understand it, and she's trying to assemble bits into something different. They're just two different endeavors. And Bird, I think, is is trying to make sense of both of those experiences at the same time. Well, and also, too, when you're a kid, you think your parents know everything. Mm -hmm. And then um, right about this age, you kind of start to recognize, oh, they uh -huh. do not know everything. Uh -huh. And in fact... <laughs> At least as, as, as I'm discovering with my, my now tween, it's like there, there's that sense of like, oh, my parents are kind of dumb. And I'm like, yes, we are. Yes, we sure are. You are not wrong. You are wrong, but you're also not wrong. Right. You know, there's I think it's a parallel again to that hero's story of essentially for me, if I, if I think about it as getting more context that if you're a child, you know, you've got a little sort of picture frame of your world and your world is in this little circumscribed area. And as you get older, you realize there's picture outside of the picture frame. 
and you kind of step back and you see more of the picture, which means that you have a different perspective on where you are in the big picture, right? Maybe you thought you were in the middle, you're in the middle of your picture, but your picture is actually down here in the corner. And there's a lot more canvas this way. Uh-huh. And your parents also have all this life from before you and hopefully still now they have different parts of their personality that you probably didn't see before. And that's, it's disorienting, but it's also in some ways like an opening for you to understand them more fully. Dad, I mean, Ethan has some moments where I'm like, dude, I get what you're trying to do, but, but I know you're trying to protect your kid, but. But it's, it's, and, and I feel like that is that it's a parental struggle that you have, right? It's exacerbated by race, but it's that sense of like, I want to protect you from the world. But then there's also the side of you, hopefully that's like, I got to get ready to release you into the world. Right. I just made it sound like you're one of those like animals that's been like, you know, nurtured and then (laughs) you're like releasing it into the, but in a way that's almost what it's like. You want, you know, you ideally you would want your child to have like a, a safe and comfortable small space. And then as they get ready to move out into the world, but this is, I mean, this is where like, you know, the talk that black parents have to have with their kids comes from, you have to make them ready in some way for the world that is not going to be accepting and warm and safe for them. No, it is. And I will say, I did appreciate that punch that Ethan threw. I appreciate that I did appreciate that. I, you know, every now and again, yes, we should all use our words first. Absolutely. We should use our words first, but occasionally a well-placed tap on the nose (laughs) is the thing that gets understood very quickly. And, but again, that's also part of Ethan's struggle. And I'm not centering him in the story any more than he should be or any less than he should be. He is Bird's dad. He is Margaret's husband. He is in a place where he has zero almost understanding of what's happening. And he wants to protect his child, but he keeps saying, keep your head down, keep your head down, make sure no one notices you, keep your head down. And, you know, you grew up in Shaker Shaker Heights, Ohio, in a mixed community, but not a large Asian American population. And I grew up in a place where, hi, I integrated it, everything. Yeah school, church, town. I mean, that was before I moved to Shaker Heights. I was born in Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania and I was in a little, you know, working class suburb. And um, I was the only Asian girl in my entire school. And there was one black girl in the school and that was it. And And there was one Jewish girl as well. So we were like the three people who single handedly were all of the diversity, right? That was at least visible to us. And it's a very weird space to be in of being like, I am going to be the representative, whether I like it or not. Right. And I was very aware of that as a kid. And I think my parents wanted me to be aware of it too, for, for pride, but also safety. They're like, you just need to be aware that whatever you do, people are going to assume of all Asian people everywhere. Right. It's a lot to balance um, for a kid and for parents. Yeah, the model minority myth, too. I mean, I hate that thing so much. I hate it with the fire of a thousand suns. It's one of the things that I'm, I feel like I understand how we ended up there. And I also am really happy that I hope that we are outgrowing it. And by we, I mean a culture, but also Asian Americans. Yeah, absolutely. That idea that it's so natural that, but that in order to succeed, you know, you have to be like 500% better. And then maybe you'll get accorded almost equality, right? This is, this is setting everyone up for disaster. And I am really happy to see so many people challenging that and changing that. Um, I love that. I, I love that idea. 
Um, there's a Chinese American writer, Charles Yu, who he said in a talk once where he was like, you know, what, love him. I love his work yeah, too. Yeah, he's the best. He's, he is the best. Um, and his his most recent book, Enter Your China Home, just blew me away. It was mm-hmm. so good. Um, and I think also challenges like very directly some of those questions about the model minority yeah. and what Asians are supposed to be like. I saw in an interview, he once said like, you know, I feel like we're really going to feel like we've achieved like some measure of equal representation when Asians are allowed to be ups. Yes, exactly. Where right? he's like, no, where seriously. We can, <laughs> where we can do that. Or he's like, and that's okay. And you're not like, how, you know, there's another phrase that I love the rep sweats. The idea that oh, when you good. see representation, you're like, oh God, what is this going to say? Because it's now people are going to think that it's another stereotype or, you know, like oh, we're feeding into those. The idea that the representation is so thin on the ground that every bit of it has to be perfect. And I think that's that's where that impulse of the model minority came from. Mm-hmm. And I'm hopeful that as there are just more Asians getting visible, that's helping us move away from, because I think it's so destructive to in all directions. And Margaret is pretty open, at least with the reader, about her journey. I mean, she's at one point, she says, oh, sometimes it's easier to write the words than it is to take an action or... Mm-hmm wait a minute, now my words have taken on, and I'm paraphrasing you poorly, but I do think people should just read Our Missing Hearts (laughs) and experience it for themselves. But Margaret's very clear that she has an arc too. She didn't suddenly walk into the world and raise a fist and say, oh, we've got to change everything. She felt the impact as well. And at least, listen, I'll take it. Whatever gets you moving, whatever gets you to say, this isn't okay, I have to stand up and say something. Great. Everyone has their own journey. But she's very very clear that this was not her plan. And I I wanted to do that on purpose because I I really, I wanted to push against the narrative that we have of this sort of hero figure who knew from the beginning and they come in and they're, you know, like all due credit to Mother Teresa, but Mm -hmm. most people do not have that clarity of vision. For most people, we kind of don't think about problems that are happening to other people Mm -hmm. until they become our own. I think it's an exceptional person that is able to do that because we are human and we have finite finite attention. Mm-hmm. But I think that for her, it, it it is a case of suddenly recognizing like, oh, I've been just ignoring those things. And now they've come home to roost, so to speak. And I wanted her to acknowledge that because I didn't want her to seem like she was this perfect person who had been socially aware and active all this time, because it's not most of us. And I think that that's, that's not how humans tend to work most of the time. We're going to dance around a really big piece of the book because it is so excellent and it is so smart. But it's kind of also the only moment where tech really sort of raises its head. I mean, the crisis has made Mm -hmm. it clear that, you know, supply chain is impacted and jobs are impacted and and everything is sort of a giant mess and people can bring to that what they will. But Margaret does something that is based on human story. I will say that and I will Mm -hmm. let people because it is such a great it's such a good idea. And the way you execute it, it's great. It's great. And it's perfect for her. And it's perfect for the world that she's in. And it makes so much sense. But there aren't a lot of cell phones in this book. And it's not like little fires everywhere where you set the book in a period where none of us carried cell phones. But I appreciate the fact that there's more happenstance. There's more serendipity. It's a little harder to get from point A to point B. In fiction, it's it's always easier for the fiction writer, when you make things harder for your characters, it's right. the mean thing that we do to characters. <laughs> Part of it is that Bird, you know, because Bird is sort of our guide for a lot of the story, he's 12 and he doesn't have a phone, right? He's at that age where like phones exist in the world. 
the internet exists in the world, but it's all very circumscribed for him. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's not allowed to have a phone and we understand later on reasons that he's not allowed to have a phone, right? But the internet also, you know, he can access the internet, but he has to go to school and do it. And then certain websites just don't show up for him. And I wanted to give the sense that for him, again, there was a little bit of a of a bubble, like partly it's a it's a no tech bubble and partly it's a sheltered bubble. But then also the idea that social media and all those things are they exist, but they're almost sort of like a force of nature. They're out there. They're talking, they're making things go viral in the good and the bad ways. But I wanted again to sort of focus on the human because I feel like what happens, it's very hard, I think, to write about social media. I mean, people are figuring out how to do it. But I think part of it is because it is kind of steps away from your humanity. That's why we have those little things that's like, can you check this box and prove you're not a robot? Can you name all the ones that have like zebras in them? And I wanted to try and stay in the human world as much as I could. But let's talk about literary influences for a second. I mean, Stephen King just wrote a rave review. I'm thank you, Mr. Of, King. <laughs> uh, thank, thank you, Mr. King. I am I am still in utter shock that he read my book, let mm-hmm. alone that he had nice things to say about mm-hmm. it, but I am incredibly grateful for it. It's all good. But three of the books that he mentions in the review, Fahrenheit 451, Animal mm-hmm. Farm, and The Handmaid's Tale, those all make lots of sense for this particular project. But who are some of the writers who've made you the writer you are? A book that I keep coming back to is The God of Small Things by Arundhati Roy. Um, a really just eye-opening book to me. And I didn't know that you could write like that. I think I read it when I was about 19 and I finished mm-hmm. it. And then like I literally immediately just turned it over and started reading it again because I was like, there's so much here. And I, again, I didn't know you could write about these things. I didn't know you could write in that kind of way. It just was all these things that I wanted to mm-hmm. do. And so I still, it's still one of my top five books. Don't ask me what the other four are, but there's, okay. <laughs> there, you know, I, I reread at least part of it because I feel like there's so much to learn from it and I admire it so much. Um, Toni Morrison, another one. I had this, you know, the same kind of experience as that with um, both The Bluest Eye and Beloved, just again being like, I didn't know that you could do this and I want to do it. And I don't know how you did it, but I'm going to keep on trying to move in that direction. Um, those are, I mean, those are some of the, the the two that come to mind. I mean, as an Asian American writer, Maxine Hung Kingston and, and Amy Tan, of course, very important to me because they were some of the first books that I had ever read. Um, I pulled them off my parents' shelf. My mom had The Woman Warrior, yep. and China Men, and yep. Master Monkey, and then and also The Joy Luck Club. And seeing like, oh, I didn't know that you were allowed to write about the, you know, like, I didn't know people could have names like that and it was allowed to be put in a book. Those are names that I know, right? Like there's something very, um, very eye-opening about just being like, that can be done. It is okay. This story also may be worth telling, right? That is really empowering. Um, and then, you know, big things too, like Shakespeare. Like I love Shakespeare. I took a bunch of Shakespeare classes and I read Shakespeare for fun because there's mm-hmm. such a playfulness in it. Even when he's writing a tragedy, like, you know, he just hits, he just it runs the gamut of all of the mm-hmm. stuff on a pure word level. You know, I love, I love his work. Ed Akhtar actually is the one who convinced me that as long as you understand that Shakespeare is meant to be seen as it's performed because Mm -hmm. it's so kinetic, um, that gave me an entirely new understanding. It's true. I think the way that we're given it in school and in school, I had to read a Shakespeare every year and there was, you know, a certain one for each year. 
And we would read it and you'd get it. And we had the ones with the facing pages where it would like explain to you on the left-hand side what the obscure like dialect was. Mm-hmm. But then we would go to see whatever play it was and you understand it in a different way. And it right. makes a lot of sense to me. And then when I was in high school, I was in this like after-school Shakespeare club where we would put on the thing and we would understand uh, how much of it was just dramatized, how much of any play is in the mm-hmm. performance and the staging and the acting and the like the stage business. And that's part of it too. So it's, it was really, I think it was a really good learning experience to see like, oh, in this particular genre, there's this whole other aspect that you don't get just on the page. You only get it in the performance or you only get it in the action or all of these other things versus a novel where in theory, it's all in the book. I think part of the fun though of reading is the stuff that gets left out. Yeah, And the stuff that you have to bring in from your own experience as well. I mean, I appreciate having my brain blown by great language or good characters or a twist or whatever. But at the same time, I just, I think you can't help but bring whoever you are and whatever your oh, yeah. experience is to whatever book you read. So it's going to be different for everyone. Absolutely. And and I don't mean to imply that like the novel is this sort of like self-contained thing that right, everyone right, right, will right. get the same experience from. Mm-hmm. I, I totally agree with you because I feel like one of the the joys of, of reading that is that you're always going to layer your own experience or right. your own viewpoint onto it. Um, there's this quote, which I've been attributing to Ann Patchett and I'm now told maybe it wasn't Ann Patchett. Like we can't source oh. this, but I'm going to give it to Ann okay. Patchett. Um, that the meaning of the book is made between the reader and the book and not between the author and the reader. And I like that idea a lot because in a way it leaves a space open for the reader to come in and make meaning out of it. And in a sense, I mean, it goes to what we were saying about, um, like Margaret's poem in the, in my novel, for example, Mm -hmm. that people read into it certain things and they're not wrong. Right. right. They're not wrong necessarily for them. It's speaking in that particular moment in this particular way because of the experiences that they've had. Right. And their interpretations are going to be different, like you said, for every person, because they are different. They've had a different life. I know you hadn't originally sort of set out to write this very specific book, but I am very glad you did. <laughs> I'm very, very glad you did. It was a lot of fun, even the moments that were a little intense let's put it that way but there is a lot of hope and there's a lot of joy and there is a lot of long looks at who we are and where we might be going and i'm just i'm very glad you wrote this book and i can't thank you enough celeste thank you so much our missing hearts is out now thank you so much for having me on me it's always such fun to talk to you Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off, where we recommend books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of Our Missing Hearts by Celeste Eng. I'm Mark. And I'm Becky. And we are coming to you from Becky's brand new home store. Becky was just recently promoted. Many congratulations to you. Thank you. Sadly, that means we've been separated, but that's okay. I'm here visiting. We're in a tiny little cramped office, and we are here to talk to you about books. Becky, if you don't mind, I'll go right in. Go right in. Thank you so much. So the book that I chose, first off, Celeste Ng, can't wait for her new book. I love her so much. This one's going to be a killer. I'm going to talk about a different title, and that is Things We Lost to the Water by Eric Nguyen. So this is a gorgeously written novel. Um, It's the story of a Vietnamese family who in the 70s moved to the States and settled in New Orleans. And it charts the family through the course of about 30 years. You follow the mother and her two sons, 
all three of them are searching. They're searching for identity. They're searching for touchstones. They're searching for a sense of belonging. They're searching for a piece of home as well. During this journey, they find so many things and they lose each other, but make a point to find themselves again too. This is a really moving and powerful story and also very fascinating because New Orleans is actually has the largest population of Vietnamese settlers. Um, this occurred right around the time during the Vietnam War, and it has the largest population of Vietnamese folks um, in the States. This is just a very telling story that I think a lot of people need to pick up. It gives a different facet of the United States in a way that I think everybody should be picking up and reading. And it's mainly the story of a family um, who is made up of very singular members that have to find themselves while still maintaining their collective unit. It's truly gorgeous. Highly, highly recommend Things We Lost to the Water by Eric Nguyen. Becky, do you have one for us? I do. Um, so the book that I thought of is a uh, kind of a newly discovered one, but it's been around for a while. Uh, this is The Memory Police by Yoko Ogawa. Oh, yay. Um, so this book was originally published in Japan in 1994, and um, but it just got a new English translation uh, recently. And so now I think a lot of people are just kind of newly discovering it. It is, oh boy, it takes place in an Orwellian, dystopian, totalitarian society. So you're thinking 1984, uh, Brave New World, uh, Fahrenheit 451. This is definitely in that vein. We're introduced to a community that is on an unnamed island, off an unnamed coast, where things are disappearing. And not just the things, but then the memories associated with those things. So say hats are chosen. Uh, the community has to collect all of the hats in it, and then all the hats are destroyed. And then uh, there might be some people who decide they want to hold on to their hats because they have memories associated with them. If the memory police find out and that you have some hats, then they will come and confiscate them, and they'll confiscate you as well. Something is destroyed, it's gone, and then as those things disappear, then the memories associated with those things disappear. But there are people who don't forget. They keep the memory of all of the things that have disappeared. Um, even though those things aren't around anymore, they still remember them. And the memory police want to find those people and get rid of them because obviously they're messing up with whatever their plan is. So we meet a writer who finds out that her editor is one of those people who doesn't forget. And she wants to help him. She uh, decides to hide him in kind of a secret passage in her home. And pretty soon, as more and more things are taken away uh, and destroyed and the memories of those things are gone, the story kind of centers in then on this couple and how this is affecting the two of them because she is losing her memories of these items while he remembers all of this. It is a gut punch of a story. It is, ugh, but it's told very simply. And I think that even adds to the starkness and the disturbing tale of it. But it really shows the power of memory and the trauma of loss. Um, it's so good. I just highly recommend it. It is called The Memory Police by Yoko Ogawa. Oh, nice pick. Uh, Especially because I just started reading that book what? about three days ago. And it is... <laughs> 
Absolutely wonderful. It's really Simply good. told, like you said, it's like a soft punch in the gut. Mm. I, I love it so much. Yeah. Uh, nice. Well, that is all we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning into Poured Over. Please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Mm. You can also follow us on our socials at Barnes & Noble. I'm Mark. And, uh, oh, I'm sorry. And that's okay. <laughs> I'm Mark. You can follow my home store at in Westchester. And I'm Becky, and you can follow my new home store at the Ann Florence. Sad but happy for you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Thanks again, everybody. Happy reading. Bye. Bye. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.